Lord, you are steadfast. You are solid. You are stable. You are unchanging in a world that feels chaotic, Lord. May we rest on the bedrock of your word, your truth, and your presence in our lives. We are grateful. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you remain standing for one more second as we go before our text this morning? We are in uh, Exodus 10 today. Uh, It's been 10 weeks now, so we are one chapter at a time. Uh, We'll be actually reading a few verses from chapter 9 just to give us that context again, help us to kind of get a sense of where we've been, and then we will be in uh, chapter 10, verses 3 through 11. Before we begin, let's start with our prayer. Um, it's not, but it's not our prayer. It's an ancient prayer, uh, a prayer uh, they call Shema in, uh, in, uh, in the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew tradition. Uh, it comes out of Deuteronomy 6. Uh, it's an invitation for us to refocus before we go before the Lord. So say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. So again, we'll be uh, in Exodus 9, 27 through 30, just to give us a little context. uh, And then we will uh, look at uh, our primary text in chapter 10. It says this. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned. Now he's saying this right after the plague of hail that we looked at last week. So he is responding right here, Pharaoh is, to the hail and to his notice that some of his fellow Egyptians brought their own animals, like we talked about last week, brought their animals in and survived uh, the plague. So this, this stirs Pharaoh, and he says this, I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord. Okay, so that's where we're starting from. Now let's jump over to chapter 10, starting in verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Pharaoh does not keep his word. He does not let them go. And so this is the response they have. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts on your country tomorrow. Skipping ahead. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do, not, do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said. But tell me, who will be going? Moses answered, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, the Lord be with you if I let you go along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go. 
and worship the Lord. Since that's what you have been asking for, then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I've mentioned before that I have three children, uh, a three-year-old, a seven-year-old, just about to turn eight, a three-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a 10-year-old, uh, Rudy, Micah, and Mia. And uh, I've showed some pictures before, and I've said, don't let the cuteness fool you. Um, they uh, can be a handful at times, my children, especially, and I know some of the parents in the room, they will, uh, they will concur, especially when it comes to obedience, which is like probably like this, you know, obvious, you know, like, of course they uh, struggle with obedience. Who doesn't? They're, um, they're little sin, they're little, they're sinful, right? They're, they're little sinful monsters. That's what, that's what we all are. Uh, that's what original sin is, is this idea that it, well, I had a, I had a, a, a friend once who is, uh, uh, wasn't a Christian, was arguing with me about this idea of rig, original sin. We were having, not an argument as much as a, a good, healthy debate. And he said, he made the point, he goes, well, I mean, look at children. You know, they're so, they're so innocent and, and loving. He didn't have children. So he goes, they're so innocent and loving. How, you know, obviously the woes of our world don't come from the children. They learn this stuff somewhere else. It's not kind of intrinsic in who they are. And I said, you've already made my point. <laughs> I don't have to say anymore because you do not have children. You don't know that, no, actually, this, I would use the exact same argument to, uh, to uh, argue for original sin. Look at children. My first word as a baby. Most, you know, most kids' first words are things like mommy or daddy. My first word, obviously I don't remember this, but my, my parents have told me, my first word was mine. I saw something I wanted, and I toddled up, and I grabbed it from their hands, and I went, mine, right? I mean, that's where it comes from. So my children are no different. They delay obedience. They delay. They argue. They debate. It can feel like a grind every time we ask them to do something. Our, our son, Micah, he's a little lawyer. I believe he will be a lawyer when he grows up because he's always bringing up counteroffers and precedents to try and negotiate a better deal. And we get to the point, after like a little while, as we are, we, the negotiation begins, I stop and I realize I don't negotiate with terrorists, right? Like, this is not a, like, this is not a, a two equal parties negotiate. I am your father. I'm just telling you what to do, right? Like, no, a seven-year-old boy, this is not a negotiation. I'm just telling you what to do. You have forgotten the pecking order, which is really what it is. is you've forgotten that you are in submission to me, this idea of submission is something that's very important when it comes to the Christian tradition. The idea that we are not God, that we are not in control, that we are not the creators. And because we are not the creators, because we did not create ourselves, because we didn't create this universe, we are not in control ultimately of how it goes down. And so whether we want to admit it or not, and most of the world does not recognize it, there is, we are by our very nature, a submissive creature. We have to be. Something is bigger and more powerful and more wise and more wonderful than anything we can imagine. And we have no, we have no other option but to take a posture of submission to that thing. Now, most people who are not following Jesus, this is, they, they refuse to do this. They will not take a submissive posture. They want to be God. 
And that's ultimately the question of life when it comes to what you believe in, what, what you believe, how you believe this universe works, is it really comes down to a question of am I God or is God God? Is there something else? And even, even if you don't want to name it, kind of at its base level, is there something in the universe that's bigger than me? And if there is, I am in submission to it. I don't, you know, and people, you know, there's lots of different religions and things like that to try to figure that out. And does this God reveal himself to us? And how does he want us to be? That's all like this, uh, another question. They're important questions, but that's still ultimately um, not the first question. The first question ultimately that every single person has to answer is, am I God or is there another God? Is it's God God? Whoever that God is going is is there something bigger than myself that I have to submit to? Whether we'd like to admit it or not, we have all been guilty of taking this approach with our Heavenly Father when it comes to not wanting to necessarily submit fully to Him. We, we kind of take the approach like my son. I'm going to try to negotiate a better deal with you. I'm going to try to you know, work some things and maybe we can get somewhere, right? We, we say to God, hey, I'll, I'll follow you this far. Or I'll give you this much. Or I'll obey you up to this point. And again, the question ultimately comes down to, am I God? Do I get to set my own terms? Or is God God? And I have to submit to his way and his pattern and his will for my life. This is the question the Pharaoh faces today. He's seen about six or seven plagues now. And he's going to come to some realizations. We're going to see this, this subtle and the not-so-subtle shift in his thinking, in his interactions with them at this point. There's a very kind of critical point for Pharaoh right here. It's going to be some of the last conversations he's going to have with, with Moses and Aaron at this point. This is sort of his, even though we're not quite at the full, you know, we're not quite at the end of the plagues. This is kind of his big kind of watermark moment to decide what he's going to do. Let's take a look a little deeper at it and see what we can find. Let's start with what we read at the beginning in Exodus 9. It says, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, and he said, This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. This is a, 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 a total departure of anything Pharaoh has said before. Even in the other plagues, when he kind of said, okay, okay, I'll let you go, right? And then he kept, he kept kind of going back on his word and going back. He never used this type of language. He's using moral language here. Now, remember, Pharaoh has just witnessed some of his own Egyptian officials act because they feared the word of the Lord. It's kind of in opposition to him, right? If he's a god and he promises protection and he sees his officials, some of his own officials, bringing their livestock in because they fear the Lord. That's what we looked at last week. They feared the Lord, and so they did it. It sort of kind of flies in the face and, and probably would prick Pharaoh's pride a little bit because he's supposed to provide the protection. And so when you did that, it, there is sort of this in opposition to Pharaoh and his power and his might and his ability to protect. So there's already a bit of like pricking, I'm sure, that kind of went on in Pharaoh's uh, you know, in Pharaoh's heart as he saw this happen. But it looks like this really spoke to him, right? It looks like he kind of turned a corner here. 
Pharaoh said, I have sinned. He's never spoken that way before. That's moral language. You don't sin against a pagan God. You only sin against the creator God. So he uses this moral language as, I have sinned. This creator God, your God, he is the righteous one, he says. He's in the right and we are in the wrong. You might even be able, you might read that in the NIV and think he's, he's admitting to one singular sin. But, but in the Hebrew, he's really making this general statement. He's saying this God is, is right. Not just in this one particular situation. This God is right and I am wrong. And my officials, we're wrong. We, we've got it. There, it seems like there's this repentance, this prayer, this act of submission. It seems like Pharaoh has gotten it, right? Maybe there's no more plagues that need to happen. It's like, oh my goodness, look, he's, he's converted. He's, he's using moral language. I've sinned. I've, you know, you're in the right. We are in the wrong in a, in a general sense. You are, you are right. We are wrong. This feels very much like a heart change in Pharaoh. But we find out really quickly in the next verse uh, that it's short-lived. Moses replied, I have gone out to the city. I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there'll be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's, but I know that you and our, your officials still yet, you do not yet fear the Lord. So Moses, Moses sees it. Moses uh, he can see through this kind of veiled admission that Pharaoh has. He goes, listen, you're, uh, you're saying all the right things, Pharaoh, but I know deep down, you look at the passage, deep down, you do not yet fear the Lord. This fear, this reverence, is all part of this idea of submission. We submit to the thing that we know has power over us. And so it's not fear in a negative sense. It's fear in reverence to the one that we are submissive to. I have seen the fear of, of the Lord in my son's eyes when I'm angry at him. He knows. You can see it. He's like, uh-oh, I've messed up. right? And, and there is a fear he has of me. Not in a manipulative sense, not, hopefully, not in a manipulative sense, uh, not in a, an unhealthy way, just a recognition in the moment when he know he's messed up that, ooh, ooh, I, I have to be reminded of the pecking order again. And there's this reverence um, that he has for his father because he's learning submission. Moses goes, Pharaoh, you don't have that. You, you, you want to get rid of the hail. You want to get rid of the, the thunder, right? It, this is very um, pragmatic for you. Uh, you. You're just kind of praying to God because you want your own needs met. But there's deep down, there isn't a submission. There isn't a fear of the Lord. And it's only then has your heart really changed. And I know your heart hasn't change. Isaiah 29 says it this way. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. They, they, you, you don't have the fear of the Lord, that, that, that submission in your heart, the fear of the Lord in your heart is not there. So you can say all the right things but deep down inside, it's not 
there. In the Egyptian view, Pharaoh himself was a deity within the pantheon of gods. So for a deity within the pantheon of gods to realize that he is just a creature in the service of his creator, that's a real step down for Pharaoh. That's a, that's a real demotion for him. That he would have to. So at this point, what Pharaoh has done, because again, in a, in a polytheistic religion, all the gods are kind of kind of battling each other and figuring out all Pharaoh has done is recognize, has brought the Lord up to his own level. He said, okay, cool. Like, yes, you have, you have convinced me, Moses and Aaron, that this God, he's on my level. Cool. And he must be in charge of like the hail and the thunder. Okay. Um, so pray to him. We're wrong. We'll, we'll, we want this to go away. Pray to him. Tell him to, to be done and we'll all be cool. Pharaoh is not willing to actually demote himself underneath this God. He doesn't fear the Lord. He just simply recognizes of one of many options that can happen. This is the very act of sin from the beginning. Again, when we ask the question, uh, what, who, who is God? Are you God or is God God? This is ultimately what every sin comes down to. This is why it's the, it's the fundamental question. Look at, look at right all the way at the back of, in the beginning, Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, the very act of sin, this is how they frame it. It's Adam denying a demotion. In Genesis 3, uh, verse 4, the serpent says to him, You certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? You will be like God. You will be like God. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. That's the heart of our, of our sin, is our desire to be like God, to be God. To negotiate better deals and not really recognize it. And ultimately, our turn away from sin is our ability to say, I am not like God. I'm not like God. It's only then, and that's where submission comes. That's where uh, humbling yourself, as Moses says to Pharaoh. You have not humbled yourself. You have not brought yourself lower. You have not recognized where you are on the pecking order. You have not brought yourself down. You do not fear the Lord. You still think you are God. And quite literally, he did. <laughs> right? Literally in this story, he thought he was a God. So he is not going to do it. De Pharaoh denies a demotion. And so the rest of chapter 10 now is all about Pharaoh saving face. It's all about him recognizing, okay, you're right. I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not going to humble myself. I do not fear the Lord. I do not bring, I'm not going to bring myself down. And therefore, look at, it's really interesting how Pharaoh begins to justify his existence and, and save face. Let's take a look at some of that through Exodus 10. In Exodus 10, starting in verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh Pharaoh did not let them go again, right? And so in verse 10, they have to go back to Pharaoh once again. So Moses and Aaron went again to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And Moses said, you got to bring yourself down here. Let my people go so they may worship me. If you refuse to let me go, I will bring locusts on your country tomorrow. Then Moses turned, uh, jumping ahead in verse 6, uh, then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. A couple of interesting nuggets here. 
Here we see Pharaoh's pride being tested. Will he submit to it? How long will you refuse to humble, withhold yourself from being subjugated to the Lord? No one has ever taught, think about that. Uh, Moses is getting a little snippy here with, with Pharaoh. There's like a lot more directness. How many people do you think talk to Pharaoh that way? Right? No one talks to Pharaoh that way. Can you imagine that? I mean, Moses marches Moses in there and they march in there and they go, hey, how long are you going to refuse yourself to, to humble yourself before me? Let them go so they may worship. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts on your country tomorrow. That's a threat, right? They march in there. They go, hey, Pharaoh, uh, yeah, remember all that talk, you know, just like probably a day ago about like you sinned and we're wrong and like pray, like... Moses is having none of it anymore. And he goes right before what he believes to be a God and gets in his face and goes, uh, how long are you going to refuse to humble yourself? You better let us go. Well, you're going to get some more of this. And then it says, at the end, at the text, it says that he turns and leaves Pharaoh. Which again is a little detail we often miss. But you don't walk away from Pharaoh. Pharaoh dismisses you. And so there's that little thing in the text that lots of commentators have noticed and have highlighted that even the act of going before the king without being invited, this is the whole Esther story. If you remember Esther, that's her whole big thing is she going before the king. Like, you don't even like walk in before the presence of the king without him being called, much less turn your back and walk out without being dismissed. My children do that sometimes. And oh, you're not, you are like, I will t- like when my 10 year old goes, okay, fine. And you know, and she goes, she goes to leave and it's like, Oh, no, I'm not done with you yet, right? Like, you come back here. And here, Moses and Aaron have the audacity to march in before, before Pharaoh, threaten him, tell him to humble himself, and then, like it says, then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Ooh, talk about, <laughs> you know, Moses is getting there. He's, he's, he's getting there. It says that Moses turned and left him there. This is, this is Moses being emboldened to Pharaoh right now. It gets worse for Pharaoh. So if we're talking about like, like a, a humility, if, you're ta- if we're talking like, uh, you know, again, Pharaoh trying to save face because of all of, because he's kind of being humiliated here, check out what's next. Then his officials get in on it, right? Then Pharaoh's officials said to him, this is in verse 7, said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that you may worship the Lord, their God. Do you not yet realize, this is them, this is the officials talking to Pharaoh. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is in ruin? And then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. So even his, his officials go, um, hey, Pharaoh, have you looked outside? Do you, re, do, you, do you recognize what's going on? His own officials, again, some of them have already been fearing the Lord, bringing their animals back. So that's already sort of a turn their back on Pharaoh. And now the, the officials that remain, that were loyal to him, are continuing to go, hey, li- listen, um, have you seen outside? Do you not yet realize what's, what's going on yet? And then look what it says here in verse 8. Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Now, I won't bore you with the Hebrew uh, conjugation and all that stuff like that. Let me just tell you, though, what this is implying, heavily implying, is that Pharaoh did not call them back into his presence. The officials came, almost like ran and stopped them, and brought them back into his presence. Again, a big no-no. So not only has Pharaoh Aaron 
and Moses left Pharaoh's presence without being asked, without being dismissed. Then the officials go grab him and bring him back before him without being called again. So Pharaoh's pride is taking some major hits here. One after another. Bam, bam. Your officials are are turning against you. Moses and Aaron are yelling at you. Uh, They walked out on you. Then they they were brought back in without your permission at the same time. So how does Pharaoh respond to all this? All of these hits to his pride, this humbling, this submission, this all the things he's being invited into. I love this. Take a look. This is how Pharaoh responds. This is in uh, starting at the end of verse 8. Okay, fine, he says. Go worship the Lord your God, he said. But tell me who will be going. Moses answered, we will be going with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you if I let you go along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. Have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Okay. Did you notice some of the, the details there, which are interesting? Again, Pharaoh's pride is taking a hint. So, and he is going to be unwilling to humble himself, unwilling to submit, to submit himself, unwilling to be brought low and recognize there is a creator above him. And so look at all these little, these little things he does to manipulate, to help him feel like he's still in control. First, he tries to save face in front of everyone uh, by setting his own terms. He says, okay, you can go and serve the God. Just let me know exactly who you want to go. And I say you only get the men. Right? That's subtle, but it's just a little way for Pharaoh to be able to go, hey, listen, um, I'll tell you who gets to go. All right, fine, you can go, but you only get to bring the men. Right? Just that there's, that, that, there's that little subtleness there of Pharaoh saving face, not willing to totally subjugate himself, and so he wants to set his own terms. I will tell you who gets to go and who doesn't. You're not in control, Moses and Aaron. You don't tell me what you're going to do. I will tell you what you get to do. And I'm going to change the terms a little bit. Only your men get to go. Okay, it's subtle, but it's, it's, it's there. Secondly, he challenges their motives. He calls them evil and wicked. He says, you are bent on evil. There's something about this I just don't like. You're, you're bent on evil. He challenges God's motives. He said, whatever you're doing here, it's not good. I don't like what's happening here. I, before, he said God was good, right? Just a, just a chapter ago, he said, you're in the right, God. We're in the wrong. And just one chapter later, all of a sudden, he goes, no, no, no you guys are bent on evil. It's the exact same word in the Hebrew. You're bent on evil. You're, you're the wrong ones. There's something about this I don't like. So he sets his own terms. Only your men can go. He challenges their motives. And then finally, he twists the truth. He twists the truth. He says, have only your men go and worship the Lord since that's what you've been asking for. That's not what they've been asking for. They have not been asking just for their men to go. They have been asking from the very beginning that their whole tribe goes. That has been the consistent ask throughout this whole thing. And now when it gets to the point where Pharaoh gets to set the terms and Pharaoh gets to, to challenge the motives, all of a sudden he just twists the truth a little bit. Well, I'll let, you, I'll let your men go because, hey, that's what you've been asking for, right? 
Moses goes, no, that's not what we, this is what we've been asking for. Our old, our young, our women, our children, our livestock, everything. That's what we're going to do. We, we aren't going to read it, but if you look further down in, the, in chapter 10, he eventually will say, okay, fine, you can take your men and you can take your women and children, but you can't bring your livestock. Right? So he continues to be negotiating with them. All right, fine, women and children, if you really want them, fine, but you have to keep your livestock. And Moses keeps going, no, that's not what we've asked for. You're setting the terms, you're challenging our motives, and you're twisting the truth. Because you will not submit. You will not humble yourself. You will not admit that there is something bigger than you out there. You want to be God. So even though you look around and all the plagues are coming down, your officials are saying, look outside, don't you see that Egypt is in ruin? Pharaoh knows he has to act. Pharaoh knows he's got to do something. Pharaoh knows he's out of control. But this is the thing he can control. I'll set the terms then. And I'll challenge your motives on the way. And I'll twist the truth to do it. He's willing with his mouth to admit that God is right. But when it comes deep down to humbling himself and submitting, he sets his own terms. He challenges the motives and he twists the truth because he's still God. He is still God. Pharaoh denies the demotion and so needs to save face in these three ways. Towards the end then of Exodus 10, we read this. As the negotiations continue, Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure that you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. I'll never see your face again. And that's the last time Moses and Pharaoh speak. It was, this is like the water, like I said at the beginning, this was the watershed moment. Pharaoh, if you want to come before the Lord, if you want to find out what it is that we believe in, it starts with you humbling yourself and submitting to something bigger than yourself. Pharaoh is unable to do it. He will even admit it with his mouth. He'll even say with his lips that God is God, that we are in the wrong, he is in the right. We have sinned. He's willing to say all of these things, but when it comes down to it, of actually submitting, actually humbling, actually admitting that I am not God, Pharaoh's not able to do it. That was it. I have sinned. The Lord is righteous. I am wicked. This is the moment that the relationship between Pharaoh and God ended. And there's no more communication after that. Any relationship with God starts with submission or a recognition that I am God. It starts with saying, I have sinned, the Lord is righteous, I am wicked. And then continually, progressively humbling yourself as you walk through life. The process of sanctification of every day, reminding yourself again, I am not God. And I will follow under his wings. I have sinned. Parenting is this. Parenting at its core is softening the kid's heart, understand submission. 
I am preparing my children's hearts to eventually submit to God. Now, there's no guarantee that will happen. That will be their own journey. And it's not, I will do the best I can, but ultimately it's going to be, they're going to have their Pharaoh moment too. Every child will have their Pharaoh moment where they'll stand before God. And maybe they'll have a Moses or Aaron, a companion next to them. And they will have to make a decision for themselves. Am I God or am I not God? And I will do the best as my parent to prepare their hearts and teach them submission to me so that they might understand submission to God. But then at the end of the day, I pray, I pray that they might choose it. But then it won't come down to me anymore. It'll come down to them making that choice for themselves. It's this ongoing reminder, a preparation to help them. This is what the Christian life is. is an ongoing process of reminding ourselves of this truth. And when we forget, and we do, when we forget our pecking order, we do the same thing the Pharaoh does. We set our own terms sometimes with God, don't we? I mean, we look at Pharaoh and go, I can't believe he did that. We do the same thing. Well, God, I'll obey you this much, but there's these things over here that I just don't really want to give to you. So I'm going to obey you to here, but then I'm not really going to give you at all of that. We do that. I'll give, I'll give this, but you're asking me to give, and I'm I'm just not comfortable going that far. I'll, I'll go this far. I just won't go that far. It's negotiating with God on what submission looks like. And God comes to the same realization that I come to with my son. I don't negotiate with terrorists like you, right? I don't, you're not, this is not a negotiation. This is my standard I've set. Submit, come under it. But we do the same thing. We set, we set our own terms. We challenge and doubt God's motives at times, particularly when hard things come. How could you let that happen, God? I thought you wanted what's best for me. How could that possibly, that situation, I say, how could you possibly make that good? How could you possibly redeem that? Man, God, I, I find it really hard to believe you're good right now in this moment. We do it. We set our own terms with God. We challenge and doubt God's motives. And we'll twist the truth. Well, did I really do that? Did God really say this? I don't really remember it that way. And we're not willing to face the truth. So we'll set our own terms and we'll challenge and doubt. We'll twist the truth. When we need a reminder again of the pecking order, of where God sits before us. We are just like Pharaoh. We're just like Pharaoh ourselves. And we need a God of love and grace and forgiveness to keep calling us back to that submissive life which is really the most joyful, peaceful place to be, is knowing where you are. They say this with children, and we see it, that our kids, they, they, are, they find the most peace when they know where they fit, when they know their place, when they know that there are standards and rules and, and, and structure around them that they can come up in. It's the most peaceful place to be, is under the structure of the Lord, as, as we are children, and he is our heavenly Father, we are not God. And we have we try to be and we've messed everything up. Though we deny our demotion, God still sends his, his peace and grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Let's invite the band up as we, as we close. 
All the way back in the, in the garden. All the way back in the garden. That was the question. Take the fruit, eat it. So that you could be like God. So you would be like God. It's our ultimately, it's our ultimate temptation. And it manifests in a million different ways in our lives. But at the heart of it, that's it. It was the denial of a demotion of one man, Adam, who denied that he was going to be like God. He denied that he was going to be subjugated to God. He wanted to be like God. So this denial of demotion goes all the way back to one man. We looked at Pharaoh today, but it really goes deeper than that. It goes to one man in Adam who denied a demotion, who did not humble himself, who did not subjugate himself. And because of that, sin entered the world and everything is messed up. Now we all can't have the inability to do that because of one man. We are all guilty. But the righteousness of one man can put it all back together. That's the gospel. Is that through one man's denial of demotion, unwilling to sacrifice, unwilling to humiliate himself, humble himself, unwilling to submit and to resist the temptation to be like God. We all struggle. We all are guilty of trying to be like God. But in God's grace and mercy, he sent another man. And because of his righteousness, as we read today in the Hebrews passage, because of one man who experienced every temptation that we did and yet did not sin, because of that, his righteousness is the path forward that gives us the opportunity to live with him and through Jesus Christ. Romans 5 says it best. Consequently, just as one trespass, one act of denial of demotion, one act of not being able to hum themselves and submit themselves and to try to be like God, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, we were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many may be righteous.